Well, I hope that is your prayer this morning, that is your testimony, that it is indeed well with your soul, because your sins have been forgiven, as we have sung about this morning. Uh, and please do be in prayer for our pastor. He is preaching 11 times over the next five and a half days, which as you can imagine is very, very exhausting. One of them is the first time I believe is tonight. So probably as you're, he's on the East Coast, probably as you're either laying down for your afternoon nap or waking up from your afternoon nap. Uh, maybe pray for him. I'm sure he would really appreciate it. Last week we were in Luke 24, uh, 23, and this week we'll be in Luke 24. So if you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 24 with me this morning. And before we read this passage... I think it would be helpful just to acknowledge the familiarity of the content of this text. Jesus' resurrection, which we are so dependent upon and yet is so familiar to us, which we take for granted so often. Let's read this text and may God give us grace to read and to experience the realities of the resurrection afresh this morning. Luke chapter 24, we'll begin reading in verse 1. We'll read down to verse 12. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel, and as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves and he went home marveling at what had happened. In 1947, a Christmas movie was released. The title of that film is Miracle on 34th Street. Perhaps you have seen it. And in this film, a prominent lawyer takes up the task of proving that a man named Chris Kringle is Santa Claus. The content of the film, as you can imagine, is fictional, but... There's something about that that is very striking, and that is the prospects of trying to prove something that is impossible. Indeed, how many people look at that film and notice the details, that's how many, if not most of this world, view what we just read this morning. The reality of the resurrection, the certainty that Christ rose from the dead, the fact that he is alive today, they view that no greater than a myth no greater than a children's tale, no greater than the story of Santa Claus. But yet, how does it 
relate to us. We who depend all of our life on the resurrection, and yet it is so mundane in our lives. We read the story of the resurrection, and there is no surprise. There is no shock. We know Jesus rises from the dead. And so when we read the words of the angels, when they say, He is not here, but has risen, the impact is stunted. It's missed in our hearts. We are not shocked by the fact that Jesus is alive today. If you were to prove in a court of law that something occurred in the past, there are two types of maybe evidence that you could appeal to. Some evidence that would be a direct account of what occurred, and then other evidence that would be more circumstantial in nature. Perhaps there's no direct recounting of what occurred, but you look at the circumstances that took place and you say, this must have occurred because of the results. When we open our Bibles, all we have for the resurrection is circumstantial evidence. There is no account in the scriptures of how the resurrection actually took place. Contrary to the apocryphal book, the Gospel of Peter, which is not part of the Bible, which is not inspired, which is not inerrant, which you cannot base your life on, there is an account of how the resurrection occurred, and it is rather fantastical. Some of the details include a voice proclaiming loudly from heaven, two men coming down, the stone dramatically rolling away, two men walking in to the tomb, and three men walking out, followed by a floating cross, and then a voice Asks a question from heaven, have you preached the gospel to all the world? And the cross speaks and says, yes. We don't have any account of how the resurrection took place. And one that is as as fantastical as that should not be believed. But that does bring curiosity to our minds. If the resurrection is so important, why would there not be an account of how it actually takes place? Why would all we have are testimonies, circumstantial evidence, so to speak, for the reality of such a certain important foundational event in our lives? Well, Luke's account includes this, so to speak, circumstantial evidence in two aspects. One of them is the appearances of the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, both on the road to Emmaus and to his disciples. And the other one is this one, the one that we have read this morning, the testimony, the evidence of the empty tomb. The evidence of the empty tomb. And so this morning, I would like to examine the marvelous certainty of the empty tomb. The marvelous certainty of the empty tomb. And we'll examine this in three phases. The first, empty findings. The second, angelic tidings. And the third, varied respondings. Let's look at empty findings. Look at verse 1 with me. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. The text speaks of the urgency of this matter. Imagine being these women, women who have left every single aspect of their life 
behind. They have put their life on hold, as we saw last week, and they have dedicated the entirety of the last several years to following Jesus Christ. And now he is dead and in a tomb, and their honoring the Lord is paused by the occurrence of the Sabbath. The Sabbath ends, they rest according to God's commandment, and urgently they desire to rush to the tomb, remove the stone, and honor the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. They are urgent. Even the timing of when they awake is emphasized. It says they awake at early dawn. Before the sun has come up, they're going to this tomb. And yet there is a great contrast. A contrast that in your Bibles is revealed by this word found. Look at verse 2. It says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. The contrast is right there. The very thing they expect to find, having difficulty of how they're going to remove the stone in front of the tomb, that very thing is changed. And the very thing they expect to find inside the tomb, the body of Jesus, is somehow missing. Someone had to have come on the Sabbath and removed it. What human logical explanation is there for why this body is gone? Why is Jesus' body missing? The drama of this story misses us often because we know this. But yet we don't think of the experience of it. Think of the roller coaster of the emotions they had undergone the last several hours. The one whom they had devoted their life to following was dead. Think of the sorrow they experienced at that occurrence. Think of their hope, their one way of coping with their pain in honoring the body of the Lord Jesus Christ in the burial. And that is gone because now his body is missing. The roller coaster of these emotions. And yet they wonder, where is the body? Think of all the human logical explanation that could have come to their mind. Maybe someone perhaps stole the body. Perhaps uh, they, they actually were at the wrong tomb. Maybe, maybe this tomb looks, looks similar, but maybe we're at the wrong place. Maybe this is not the right hole in the rock. Maybe we've come to the wrong area. In the midst of their grieving, events get stranger and stranger. Their emotions are on a roller coaster. And it is this fact, the fact that the tomb was empty, the certainty of this event begins controversy. At this point, controversy occurs. Because of all the varied, manifold, abundant explanations for why they experienced the empty tomb. Skeptics today love devising theories, explanations for why the tomb was empty. Even the Jews at this time period, we know from other gospels, they devised an account of why the tomb was empty. Perhaps someone, maybe the disciples, stole the body. Think about atheists who you can find on the internet coming up with explanations. Maybe Jesus didn't actually die. Maybe he wasn't fully dead. And maybe he got up and walked out of the tomb. Or perhaps not the disciples stole his body, but those who seek to further desecrate and dishonor our Lord, they wanted to remove the body. All the different explanations to explain away this fact that the tomb was empty. And yet this is the beginning of controversy. If you could think about the most controversial events throughout human history, perhaps the resurrection, I dare say, is 
the most controversial. It separates those who follow Christ and accept his lordship and those who deny the existence of our Lord Jesus Christ as a risen Savior. This morning, have we lost the sight of this miraculous event? Have we lost the fact in our mind that the tomb is indeed empty? Is that so trivial to us? Is that something we read over and we, we don't even consider on a day-to-day basis that Christ is risen again and He is alive today interceding for us? This is the strange reality of the Christian life, that our life, that so much of our walking with the Lord, so much of our dependence on Him involves us returning over and over and over to the same historical event and basing our life on it. Does that not cut against the grain of the novelty pursuits of our age? Our age, which is dominated by the pursuit of something new, and yet Christ has set it up, God has ordained that we would repeatedly go over and over and over again to this fact that Christ is risen. Does this speak to our pursuits of things that are new? Things that obsess our attention. The pursuit of a new career because our current one is dissatisfying. The pursuit of a new automobile or an adjustment to our current one because what we have is not enough. The pursuit of a new relationship because we are discontent where we are. The pursuit of a new experience, a new vacation, something new is at our attention. And yet so much of our life, so much of our walk with God, they're saying all of it is dependent on something that is not new, that is historical, that is not repeatable. Jesus Christ will not die again for your sins. Your life is dependent on something old. And yet, at the same time, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the epitome of the experience of novelty. Why can a person say that? Well, the resurrection of Christ guarantees that you will experience new life. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that you will experience new hope. The resurrection of Christ guarantees that you have a new peace, that you have a new purpose in living your life, that one day you will have a new resurrection. You will be raised from the dead, that one day you have currently, even now, you have new desires if you are in Christ. You have a new existence, a new home. Every aspect of your life is new because of this one fact that is not new, the resurrection. The resurrection is our faith. It is our dependence. Have we lost the sight of this fact? Have we lost the certainty of the empty tomb? The empty tomb is not just controversial because of the history behind what occurred. It's also controversial because of the theological significance of that event. And Luke makes this really evident in his writing. If you look with me at verse 3, it says this, but when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. They did not find the body, and notice the words together, Lord Jesus. If you've been reading through your gospel of Luke, this is the first time either of these two terms 
comes together. The word Lord occurs repeatedly throughout the Gospel of Luke. The word Jesus, as you would expect, is frequent in Luke's writings. But for the very first time, these two words come together after the resurrection. It's as if Jesus is crowned Lord because of the resurrection. The verification of Jesus' lordship is this event. And we know this because if you read volume two of Luke's writing, if you turn to the book of Acts, 17 times Lord and Jesus occur together. It's as if Luke in Acts is writing and referring back to the reason Jesus is Lord, the reason you know that to be true is because of the resurrection. This event verifies Jesus' lordship over all. And this is the certainty that Luke is proclaiming. Take with me in your Bibles and go to the very outset of the Gospel of Luke. Go with me to Luke chapter 1. Luke, at the beginning of his writing, gives us one of his purposes. Perhaps his primary purpose. There are many themes that run throughout the book of Luke. One of them is the plan of God. We emphasized that theme last Sunday. But here at the outset, he dedicates his epistle, his gospel, I should say, to Theophilus. And notice the wording of verse 3. It seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Look at verse 4. That you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. The certainty that Luke is writing about is boiled down to this central fact that Jesus is Lord. That you may have certainty that the resurrection took place and as a consequence, Jesus is Lord over all. And how do we know this? Well, we go to volume two, the beginning of volume two, Acts chapter two. Turn with me there briefly in your scriptures. Acts chapter two. This is Peter preaching at Pentecost. And notice again, same sort of terminology as you see in Luke 1, 3, and 4. You see at the outset of volume 2, Acts chapter 2, verse 36, Peter preaches and he says, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. Again, certainty. Certainty about what, Luke? Certainty about this, that God has made him, being Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. You see, the controversy of the resurrection isn't just that something supernatural happened. The controversy of the resurrection is the implications of that supernatural event. And that is this, that Jesus Christ is not just a man. Jesus Christ is not just a good teacher. Jesus Christ is Lord over all. Amen. He demands your fealty, your allegiance, your loyalty. He demands all of you because he is alive. Do you honor Christ as Lord? Do you honor him as your master, as possessing all of your life, as dictating how you live your life according to his word? However, if we turn back to Luke, this raises questions, further questions about the resurrection, about these empty findings. Turn with me to Luke 24. Why... Does the resurrection guarantee Christ's lordship? This is a question that was not just raised by believers, but by even those who refute the concept of the resurrection. There's a famous atheist who's now deceased, 
Perhaps he's an agnostic. I'm not familiar, but his name is Christopher Hitchens. Perhaps you've heard of him. He loved coming out with arguments to refute the supernatural, particularly the reality of the resurrection. And this was his argument. What is so significant about Jesus' resurrection? In a debate with a Christian apologist, he raises these points that resurrection was an abundant occurrence at Jesus' time. Think about the others who were resurrected, even within the Gospel of Luke. You have the widow of Nain, her son, resurrected. Jairus' daughter, resurrected. Lazarus, resurrected. Even when Jesus dies on the cross, the scriptures inform us that many come out of the tombs and begin walking around. What is so significant about Jesus' resurrection? Even if it did occur, it's no different than all those other ones. We wouldn't affirm that Lazarus is God because he rose from the dead. We wouldn't affirm that Jairus' daughter is God because she rose from the dead. What is the significance of Jesus' resurrection? And Hitchens concludes, there is none. Therefore, it did not exist. Because all these others were raised from the dead, then Jesus' resurrection is of no consequence. And perhaps for us that may be troubling because those things are true. Many others did rise from the dead. What is so unique about Jesus' resurrection that makes him Lord? Well, the answer is found here in the angelic tidings. We have empty findings. Now we have angelic tidings. Verse 4. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified on the third day rise. In this text, Luke draws attention to the fact that there are two men at the tomb. These two individuals testify to the certainty of it being empty. They testify to the fact that Jesus is risen. But why are there two? Well, some have concluded that the fact that there are two is indicative of Old Testament language, Old Testament covenantal terminology that to prove a charge as right, there must be two or three witnesses. In fact, if Jesus were guilty, if he were sinful, then he would not have stayed, he would not have risen, he would have stayed dead. And yet these two witnesses affirm very clearly that Jesus is not guilty, that this charge against him should not stand because he is alive. And they do so by usage of a rhetorical question. Look with me again at verse 5. Why do you seek the living among the dead? Why do you seek the living among the dead? Notice this question. They're not asking a what or a how or a when or a where. They're getting to the idea of motive. What is causing you women to search for one who is alive in the place where only dead men or women dwell? What is motivating that? Why are you here? And that question will be answered in a moment. But notice the implications of even the wording of that question. The question says, why do you seek the living? Implication, Jesus is alive. He is not dead. He is not here. 
Living people do not live among the tombs. If you go to a cemetery in Los Angeles County or in Simi Valley or some other place here in California, you will not find people living there. You can find people living in a lot of other places here in California, but you will not find them living at a cemetery. Living do not dwell among the dead. And by implication, Jesus is not in the tomb. Jesus is not in any of these tombs. Jesus is alive. But let's look further at this question, why? What would cause them to come here? And they draw attention to this with their exhortation. And that is through the words of Jesus Christ himself. Look with me at verse 6. He is not here, but has risen. And this, being unique to the Gospel of Luke, notice this wording, remember how he told you. In other words, women, the reason you are here is because you have forgotten something critical. You have missed the plot. A critical fact of Jesus' life has gone passing. You have forgotten it. Women, remember the words Jesus. Women, remember Jesus' words. Had the women have remembered those words, they would not have come to the tomb. They would not have prepared spices and ointments to to anoint the body. They would have been searching for the risen Christ. How do we know this? And this is what differentiates this resurrection from every other resurrection previously. The resurrection is different not just because Jesus doesn't die later, like every other person who was risen from the dead. The difference is this. Notice the wording of the text. Remember how he told you. The resurrection was something that Jesus Christ predicted about himself. He said this, the Son of Man must be delivered. Now in this text, Jesus isn't the one saying these words, but we know that Jesus did say these words. Turn with me to Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Luke chapter 9, verse 22. Verse 21, Jesus says to his disciples, he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying... The Son of Man, and notice the language again, language that we harped on last week, that we focused on, the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Or again in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18, verse 31, And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Notice the extensive detail Jesus gives to what will occur culminating in the resurrection. No one before had predicted their own resurrection. And no one before had said, this is God's plan. Even in that statement itself, is a differentiating factor between every other resurrection. And that is this. For anyone to claim that they know the plan of God, the specific outworkings of his designs, of his will, insinuate something about that person. That person is not a teacher. That person is not a good person. That person is God and God alone. Because only God alone 
decrees his will. Only God alone reveals his will. Only God knows his will. Jesus testifies to the fact that he is God, the God-man who came to earth, who died for your sins, so that you may sit here this morning and sing, it is well with my soul. That one died, was buried, but was raised. That one lives even now. Their confusion, the confusion of the women, the lack of faith is attested to their failure to remember. And we can pause here and just make application about the difficulties in our lives. What is the thing in your life that is causing you to lack faith, that is keeping you from walking with Him? What is the thing in your life that's gripping your heart with unbelief and worry and fear and anxiety? What is that thing? And your own struggle in that specific area could be solely attested to this one thing, that you have forgotten the words of your Savior. Every struggle we endure, every struggle we go through, the reason we continue to struggle is because we neglect and we forget the words of Jesus Christ. The words that he will never leave us or forsake us. The words that he has given to us, his Holy Spirit. The words that he will sanctify us in truth and make us more like himself. The words that the work that he has begun in us will be completed until the day of Christ. The word that we have everything we need, every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus has been given to us in him. When we neglect and forget those words, we end up looking like these women, searching for something that does not exist, losing our way, missing God's desire for our life. What type of response does this certainty the certainty that Jesus decreed his own resurrection and brought it to pass, what does that certainty bring about in our life? How does this significant, dramatic, culminating event affect our hearts? Well, we see empty findings, angelic tidings, and we see varied respondings. Look with me at verse 8. It says this, the women, and they remembered his words. By God's grace, the angels bring words to their remembrance. And notice the impact that remembering the words of Jesus Christ has on their life. And returning from the tomb, verse 9, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. Two times in verse 10, you have a statement. The women are the ones who proclaim these things. Luke, what are you doing? Why are you saying the testimony comes from women twice? You read ancient historians, they'll say things. Celsus, one who is a Jew who disputed the reality of the resurrection, accuses Luke of misattributing its veracity because he appeals to a woman give the testimony. Josephus, ancient historian, first, second century, test, testifies that in the court, a testimony of a woman was not admitted. Luke, you're writing in this context, why would you have a woman's testimony be the one to verify that Jesus is risen from the dead? Answer, 
Because that's exactly how it happened. The resurrection is according to God's plan because this is, was God's decree. This was God's will. It was God's desire that these women would hear and respond in faith by remembering the words of Christ and be the ones to proclaim to the preachers, the apostles, the ones who were closest to Jesus Christ, to tell them, men, he is not here. He is risen indeed. This is exactly how it occurred. But examining the women raises questions for us about the apostles. Why did the apostles not believe? I mean, these were the ones who were closest to Christ. Surely Christ told them more than anyone else that he would rise again. Look at the text. It says, verse 11, these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. They disbelieve. They lack faith. They reject. They doubt. They disagree. Every part of their response is contradictory to what we would hope for. Again, Luke why would you include this detail? Why would you paint this picture of the apostles as so negative? Why would you attribute to them a lack of faith in their own Savior? Again, because it's certain. Because this is how God decreed it. This was God's plan. This is a certain factual event, the resurrection. This word, as you notice in the text, verse 11, it says, they seem to, the be, seem to them an idle tale. This word is a medical term which has reference to the delirium that comes when you get really sick. Perhaps you've known someone who's been really sick, and they start babbling things, and you wish you had your camera recording the things they were saying because they were not believable. Or perhaps maybe someone you know had a surgery, and they were you know, knocked out, or they were anesthetized, and there was so much under the influence of the anesthetic that they just began saying things. You know, after they come out of the wisdom, you know, teeth, tooth or teeth surgery, they're, they're just saying just absolute nonsense. And you wish you maybe could have recorded all those things they said. That's what the apostles think the women are saying. These women are speaking nonsense. They've lost their minds. How could we ever believe them? Notice how much they have forgotten Jesus Christ's own words. Surely the women were recounting that the angels told them, remember, and yet the apostles are the ones who forget. Pause for a moment. Although this may be discouraging, could this not serve as an encouragement? The ones whom God uses in volume two in Acts to advance the cause of the church, to preach the gospel and see many come to Christ these ones even doubted the truth of the resurrection. At a critical moment, they had turned their backs on Jesus' words. Does that give you hope and faith in the blessed grace of God to you in the midst of your sin when you forget what God has commanded of you, when you forget what God's will is for your life and you sin? Does this not operate as an encouragement the grace of Christ coming to you in that moment because it came to his closest men who doubted his resurrection at the critical moment. 
But further, why do they not understand? What, are there any other explanations besides just the human standpoint of not remembering the words of the Lord? And there is one. Turn back with me to one of Jesus' earlier predictions about his own death and suffering. It's in Luke 18. Turn with me to Luke 18, verse 31. We see here that Jesus has taken the twelve and he begins to speak to them. And we read this text already. Jesus will be delivered over to the Gentiles, mocked, treated shamefully, spit upon, flogged, killed, and rise. Notice with me the wording of verse 34. But they understood none of these things. Why, Luke? This saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. Here Luke includes this subtle detail to indicate something supernatural must take place for someone to believe in the resurrection. This truth, the the fact that Christ would die and suffer and be flogged and rejected of men, be crucified, but then rise, that fact requires supernatural sight or it is hidden from you. Unless God opens your eyes, you will not see this. The Spirit of God must do work in your life for you to see this. And we know this because when we turn to Luke chapter 24 on the road to Emmaus, at the very end, the disciples, the ones who walk with Jesus, it says this about them. Verse 31, Luke 24, 31. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Their eyes were opened. Unless the Spirit of God opens your eyes You will not see this truth. And so some of you come here, and by virtue of the fact that this event is so mundane in your life, it is so common, you have read over it so often, you haven't even considered the realities of the resurrection this week. That testimony is a fact that Jesus Christ has indeed opened your eyes. Because it is a fact of your life, so much so that you don't even think about it. Jesus Christ, by the Spirit of God, has caused you to believe His Word that he is alive, that he is risen indeed. Lest we miss the incredible nature of this event, the people we love, the people we pray for, the people we care for, unless the Spirit of God gets a hold of their heart, they will not believe. They will not remember the words of Jesus and believe in his resurrection. There's one other response in this passage. And that is the response of Peter. Look with me at verse 12. But Peter rose, ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in, he saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. The way this verse reads raises many questions in our minds. Did Peter actually believe? The text says he marvels But this word marvel can be used in a lot of different contexts, sometimes negative, as in disbelief, to be astonished and be skeptical. Sometimes positive, like at the beginning of Luke when Zechariah and Elizabeth are marveling at the words that are given to them. Did Peter actually believe? Why would Luke include this detail about Peter doubting or maybe believing or not really sure? Well... How could we know that Peter was even doubting him? He marveled. If you read Luke 24, verse 24, it says that 
The ones on the road to Emmaus testify to Jesus that some of their group, and it seems to be they're speaking of Peter, went to the tomb. Look at verse 24. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. How would the disciples have known that Peter did not see the Lord? Well, probably Peter told them about it. I went to the tomb. I saw it's empty, but I don't see Jesus. He's risen, but I don't see him. So at one moment, he, he, he's the one who leaves the other disciples and wants to verify the account of the women, and yet he's halfway there. He doesn't fully believe. We know this because in verse 34, the Lord himself has to appear to Simon at the very end, after the road to Emmaus, the men, the disciples on the road, they go and rejoin the other disciples, and they learn, verse 34, that the Lord has risen indeed and has appeared even to Simon. Think about the person who receives a personal visit from the Lord. Peter, the one who just two chapters earlier denied the Lord. The one who heard the words of the Lord, was convicted, remembered what God had said to him, what Jesus had spoken to him about his coming denial, remembered those words and was convicted. And yet he fails to remember and believe the testimony of the Lord Jesus about his own resurrection. Jesus appeared to him as a display, manifestation of his grace. The certainty of the empty tomb is controversial. And we know this because all the responses in this chapter are different. Some believe, some doubt, some are skeptical, and some outright reject. The resurrection and its theological implications for your life will cause a line to be drawn in the sand between the relationships that we have in our life, the relationships that we hold most dear. Did Jesus rise from the dead? Is he the Lord of your life? Perhaps again this morning, what we need is a sight of the empty tomb, a sight that Jesus is not there, that he is alive and risen indeed, a sight that there is no human explanation for this event, a sight that there is no way around it if you are a follower of Christ. All of your faith, Paul says, hangs on this event being certain. And so maybe what we need this morning is a shot in the arm of our faith, a shot in the arm of our confidence in the Lord that he is risen indeed. You see, the certainty of Jesus' resurrection has no bearing on your life unless you Believe it and base your life on it. The impact of the resurrection will be stunted in your life unless you put all of your elements in that one event. All of the portions of your life that you hold most dear rest on this one thing, the resurrection. Started by alluding to a film, America on 34th Street, and this lawyer seeks to prove that this man is Santa Claus. And yet all throughout the film, there's this underlying question. Does the man who's seeking to prove the existence of this person actually believe it? Just because he can prove it in a court of law, does he actually believe it to be true? And so this morning, I conclude with this thought. Perhaps you've heard 
all the arguments for the certainty of the resurrection. You could spout them off one by one. But friend, do you believe it? Has it worked its way from your head into your heart? And does it affect your life? When you look at the things that are coming up on your calendar this week, things that you may be nervous about, maybe a doctor's visit, things that you may be excited about, maybe a vacation or a trip, does the fact that Jesus has risen from the dead and is alive today, is that worked its way into your life such that you do not live your life in the same as some who would not believe it? Do you believe in the incredible nature of this event? Has the resurrection got a hold of your heart? Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer.